Hello there, all my cryptographic friends. This is your host, Kevin Rose. This is my first episode. Welcome to Block Zero. If you're wondering what Block Zero is all about, this is the show dedicated to all things cryptocurrency. Um, I got the name Block Zero. It's actually the name of the first block that was ever recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain. It's also called the Genesis block. It's a little trivia there for you. Uh, my goal with this show is to bring on kind of the builders and experts in this space. So we'll be talking to people that are building new coins, um, people that are building wallets, decentralized apps. I just kind of want to have anyone and everyone on that is an expert so that you can understand what's going on because it is a very crazy and chaotic time in the worlds of crypto. Today's guest, though, has been doing this for a really long time, Andreas Antonopoulos. He's been an advocate for all things Bitcoin and decentralized coins. He's been a public speaker talking about Bitcoin for, for many years now. He's actually the author of three books, uh, Mastering Bitcoin by O'Reilly, which is those really technical manuals you've probably seen at bookstores where they have the little grayscale animals on the outside. I think his is, his is ants. Also, The Internet of Money is another uh, book that he came out with. It's a really great one for understanding all things uh, cryptocurrency. And he has a new book coming out called Mastering Ethereum, which is another O'Reilly book. So one of the reasons I really enjoyed my conversation with Andreas is that he is a true believer. This is not about how can I speculate, how can I get my three or five X, uh, my Lambo, <laughs> cash out back to fiat. Um, this is about holding for the long term because you really believe in the true potential of cryptocurrency and what it's going to do to the world. We go really deep and chat about decoupling currency from government and why that's a good thing, what cryptocurrency means for third world countries, and a bunch of other topics. This was a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and welcome to the podcast. This is Andreas Antonopoulos. So I think a really interesting place to begin would be to talk about Bitcoin, but in terms of what it actually is behind the scenes. I think a lot of people, at least um, on the non-technical side, when you mention Bitcoin, they think, well, you know, I have PayPal, I have Venmo, <laughs> I have these services. Like, why do I need yet another way to transfer money? Can you give us kind of an overview on, on why it's different than those systems? Well, I think the easiest way to explain it is that Bitcoin is a combination of different technologies that for the first time ever allow us to implement trust as an internet protocol. And basically boils down to that. PayPal, Venmo, they're services. Uh, Bitcoin is a protocol. And there's a very big difference between those two. Bitcoin is a protocol that allows you to do trusted transactions with people you don't trust and to independently verify the authority of those transactions without trusting anybody else. And that's really the, the magic behind it. By turning money and other trusted transactions into an internet protocol, it opens the door for all of the internet-related goodies to happen. Innovation at the edge, innovation without permission, open access, APIs, interoperability, borderless and global operation, none of which you can get with any of the other systems. Yeah, I want to I want to dive in a little bit deeper here on the actual trust point, because I think this is so key for people to understand. Now, I would say that, you know, just, you know, kind of playing the newbie for, for a minute, when you think about trust, I mean, most people would say, I trust PayPal or I trust Venmo. Can you dig into mm -hmm. why exactly, specifically and technically why this is different? Well, 
every other uh, system we have, and most of finance, with a few exceptions, requires trust in a third party. And it's built as a system of checks and balances and oversight, you know, modern finances, in such a way that that trust uh, can be protected by layers and layers and layers of oversight. But the fundamental problem with all of that is, in fact, the fact that you have to trust the third party. And that third party is motivated by a lot of things that have nothing to do with your particular security or your freedom or your uh, self-expression or any other things that you care about. When you trust uh, PayPal, you're not just trusting PayPal, you're also trusting the American justice system, the US government, and all the other uh, factors that can put pressure on PayPal. I think this was probably most clearly demonstrated in the unlawful and extrajudicial blockade of WikiLeaks in 2013, whereby the US government basically coerced every single payment provider, uh, MasterCard, Visa, American Express, PayPal, MoneyGram, everyone, to embargo and cut off uh, WikiLeaks without any due process prosecution or conviction, and basically just cut them off the international financial system, forcing them to go to a neutral protocol, which is Bitcoin, uh, that cannot be censored and that does not require you to trust the third party that can be coerced. Ironically, now WikiLeaks has made a 50,000% return on their Bitcoin from oh, 2013. Wow. That's insane. And they recently made an announcement thanking the US government for freeing them from do dollar mess and giving them a new future because of their uh, unlawful and extrajudicial embargo. That's interesting that, that you mentioned the trusting because I think it's it's on two different levels, right? You're trusting the US government to actually provide a stable currency and a dollar that is backing everything. And then, you know, like so many people have experienced, and I've actually fell victim to this as well. It's like, I've had PayPal freeze my account before. And so you're trusting mm -hmm. that, that they're not going to interfere with your money, which they can. And then as we all know, I mean, it's like to get a hold of someone there isn't a nightmare. It's not just that they can, it's that they must. And this is really a subtle point, which is that financial service providers fulfill a feature of money that isn't quite clearly discussed, which is using money as a system of control, a system of law enforcement, whereby all financial service providers are basically deputized into law enforcement without due process, where they must freeze your account. And you are at that point guilty until proven otherwise mm -hmm. in, a, in a complete perversion of due process. And they must do that because that's the bargain they have in order to operate a financial service company. And so they cannot be neutral. In fact, they must be political. When money is turned into a system of control, the other aspects or features of money, being a store of value, being a medium of exchange, being a unit of account, all become subordinate and become degenerate effectively or eroded by this application of money as a tool for surveillance and control. It breaks money. And, uh, you know, <laughs> ironically, I believe we're at this moment in history where a deep change is happening. In most uh, Western and developed nations, it is fairly a no-brainer no among most people that separation of church and state is necessary because if they become combined and one becomes subordinate to the other, both get perverted, both get eroded. 
And when they're together, they end up corrupting each other. So religion corrupts politics, politics corrupts religion. And we understand why separation of church and state is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Well, how about separation of state and money? And that's a new concept. And the idea here that for exactly the same reasons, because money is used as a tool for exercising power, uh, and that leads to corruption, that uh, money and states should be separated, or that money at least should be a neutral system of commerce that obeys uh, mathematics and uh, neutral rules that have nothing to do with politics. If effectively, that's what Bitcoin delivers on a very basic level, is a global open protocol that simply doesn't care about that stuff and, and operates based on the same predictable rules and serves purely the role of commerce and not the role of surveillance or control. Now, when you decouple state and money, so those aren't linked together and money is independent from state, I mean, obviously that's got to freak the government out, right? Because they're so used to having control over that asset class and being able to issue it when they like and um, tax it when they like. What happens when we're in a truly decentralized world and it's untraceable, people aren't paying their taxes? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you fix that problem? Uh, yes. I mean, the fear of governments towards this um, lack of control is directly proportionate to their level of um, freedom and their real respect for human rights, self-expression, and individual freedoms. Uh, the governments that are most freaked out are the ones that think that uh, people controlling their own money is dangerous. And the ones that are least freaked out are the ones that believe that people should have self-expression, freedom of association, freedom of speech, and freedom of commerce. All of those things closely related to individual freedoms. And yes, they, they might be freaked out, but I think it's a, a mistake to kind of assume that this is something new. For thousands of years, Money has been untraceable, private, person-to-person, -person, direct, without fees, without intermediaries, without third parties, without uh, corporations in the middle, and we call that cash. And it's worked very well as a peer-to-peer -peer mechanism of payments for thousands of years. Society did not collapse. I would argue, if anything, despite the surveillance, tax, evasion, money laundering by big banks and corporations are perhaps at all-time high. And yet, you know, society worked quite well with cash. What Bitcoin does is it just does cash, again, in a way that's transmissible over the internet, but fundamentally a person-to-person -person decentralized form of payment. And so this, um, this dream that governments had in the 1970s that they could reach a point of total control over financial flows where every endpoint is known, every transaction is logged, recorded, and surveilled, that dream has now ended. And I think that's a good thing because that dream of total control can only be described with one word, and that's totalitarianism. And it's not a healthy place to go. And so hopefully, I think with Bitcoin, we may have dodged this bullet. We may actually, just as cash is being removed from societies, we have an alternative that they can't remove, uh, which is just in time, because a society in which your financial system is completely controlled is, is a society where democracy cannot exist. You mentioned Bitcoin is a de decentralized form of payment. Can you speak real quickly about how it actually becomes fully decentralized? How, like, how is this a currency for the people empowered by the people? Well, in its ideal form, and, you know, I, I have to 
acknowledge that any instance in time of Bitcoin may not be in its ideal form and has all kinds of issues. It's still better than anything else we have. But in its ideal form, the, the idea here is that it's controlled by a balance between participation and competition uh, by all the participants that keeps the system honest by uh, rewarding those who play by the rules and uh, essentially punishing those who don't play by the rules by making them lose the uh, investment that they've made in security. So um, Bitcoin has a built-in market-based competitive system in it um, that ensures security by requiring the participants in that consensus system to uh, put money down. And that money is uh, almost like a bond that says, I will follow the rules and do the security and validate transactions correctly. And if they do follow the rules, they earn a reward. And if they don't, they lose their bond. When you say their bond, you're talking in terms of the, the power that they're purchasing? That's correct. In order to participate in the competition, you have to expend energy. That energy is not refundable. So if you don't make the reward from the Bitcoin and you've already spent the energy, you break the rules, you lose that money. And that can be quite a significant amount of money. Okay. So just to make sure we haven't lost people. So you're talking about this idea that people sign up to be a miner. They go out and they hook a computer to the internet, they hook a mining rig, whatever setup they might happen to have, which they come in all different sizes and, and forms and some are more efficient than others. You hook this up to, and you're paying for power. So you're buying local power to, to actually go and compute and process these transactions. And by the fact that thousands of people or tens of thousands of people are doing this is what makes it fully decentralized. So it's the power is not in any one person's hands, but spread out across a whole group of people worldwide. Would that be a fair way to sum it up? Yes, although uh, one missing piece from that is that while the miners validate all transactions by the rules and they are putting down this commitment, this stake, this bond, if you like, in form of committing energy, in order to just participate in the mining, they're not the only ones validating. Every other fully validating node on the network, including ones that are not mining, including the ones that are run by exchanges, merchants, uh, users, wallets, and my own laptop, all of those nodes are also validating the same rules. And they will also reject the work of miners that does not meet those rules. So there's this careful balance between multiple different constituencies that make up this emergent consensus phenomenon. And that's the magic behind Bitcoin. It's a, it's a form of decentralization of power, which isn't perfect by any means, but it's more decentralized than many other systems we have. So you can think of PayPal as a system in which there's only one miner and there's only one clearinghouse and that's centralized. And as a result, that well-identified, well-known single participant can be regulated and coerced. And also you have all of the risk of them you know, running away with the money <laughs> and, right. and or going bankrupt or failing as a bank. Uh, again, that's a big problem with trusted third parties. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point in that if you are trusting someone like a PayPal or even a, a very large bank, all it takes is a breach of their data centers to take them down, or they could go offline. Whereas with Bitcoin, I mean, you could take entire countries off the grid and it's still going to function, which is pretty amazing. Exactly. And it's the same, it's pretty much the exact same idea as the internet. So you can find a lot of 
analogies like, um, can Bitcoin be turned off, is exactly the same as asking, can the internet be turned off? In part, at times, for a period of time, by certain people in certain circumstances, yes, but overall, as a whole, in the long term, no, absolutely not. It's impossible. And again, the same balance applies with Bitcoin. You can disrupt and delay and um, deny in specific jurisdictions for, for short periods of time, but not everywhere all the time and comprehensively. The same thing applies if you're asking about you know aspects of control. Who controls the internet? Well, no one really controls all of the internet. People control parts of it, and um, but they're balanced by other people who control other parts of it. And the same thing again. Bitcoin really is the internet of money, and it's best to think of it that way, not just as a currency, but as a platform um, similar to the internet that allows us now to do trust as a protocol. When, when you're thinking of it as, as cash, because you, you've mentioned a few times that you know, Bitcoin is like cash, mm-hmm. the thing that, that concerns me is like, you know, I, when I have a, a bank account with the FDIC, it's insured up to 250K, I'm not worried about that going away. You know, I would imagine for the average consumer, they're sitting there thinking like, you know, I go and I buy a Bitcoin or I start getting into this. It's like keeping cash in under your mattress. Like it, yep. if I keep it on my computer and the house burns up and goes up in flames, like it's gone, right? Well, you know, the, the thing is you've got to take two perspectives and add them to this mix. One is the idea that because it's a system of programmable money, you can do many interesting things that you can't do with cash. Like, for example, I can't make a photocopy of cash, keep it in my wallet and my safe at the same time. And if I lose one, the other one's still valid. I can do that with Bitcoin. I can make a copy, a backup of keys, and keep them in multiple locations. I can apply encryption to them, etc. Now, this is not easy. Which brings us to the second point, where you say the average consumer. Mm-hmm. Who is the average consumer? And and this is where we really need to rethink this, because a lot of the conversation happens for and from the perspective of a middle-class American. And, and that is entirely the wrong perspective to use, because Americans represent less than 5% of the global population, the most privileged 5%, uh, with the greatest access to banking and financial services, with the least amount of constraints and controls, with among the least corrupt governments in the world, not the <laughs> least, but among, right? And and most of the banks, except for a few, are not downright organized criminals. Now, let's look at when you say the average consumer. The average consumer, if you now take a planetary perspective, is a 23-year-old Han Chinese male who lives within a thousand miles of the most populous part of the planet, which is Southeast Asia. That's the average person. They are facing corrupt governments, uh, dictators, totalitarian systems, corrupt banks, mafiosi, bribes, and confiscations. And even the dream of FDIC is honestly more an illusion than anything else. It operates only for small crises, for one bank failures. But on a systemic level, there's no way the FDIC can handle a big crisis. Um, We know that. I mean, anybody who has studied the system knows that eventually what that means is the government bailing out all depositors. And we now know that the government cannot bail out all depositors. The only reason it works is because you haven't had a systemic crisis. Now, I come from Greece, and uh, guess what we had in 2013? We had 
depositor insurance, which protected depositors for their first 100,000 euros, as they have everywhere in Europe. How much do you think that mattered when they came in to do the bail-ins and put currency controls on bank accounts? Interesting. That disappeared overnight, right? No mm, warning. Right. Banks are closed on Wednesday. They're not going to open until Monday. When they do open, 20% of your money's gone. The rest is subject to withdrawal limits on a weekly basis. Your money, not your money. FDIC, forget about it. Never happened. Let's not talk about that. And this has happened again and again and again. And of course, you know, 90% of the human population lives in countries where they don't even have that. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, where, where the access to... So, you have to look at Bitcoin from a broader perspective. And the broader perspective is a world in which two and a half billion people have no access to banking whatsoever. The purely unbanked live in cash and barter societies um, because cash has failed in some cases. A good four billion people are severely underbanked. And you know, less than a billion and a half people on this planet have the kind of banking that you and I enjoy. You know, I can go open a brokerage account tonight online without showing anybody anything, um, You know, just typing in some information. 24 hours, I have a brokerage account. I'm trading on the Tokyo stock market in yen. Nobody's going to stop me. Nobody's going to get in my way. I'm, I have access to ample liquidity. That reality doesn't exist for most people. So mm -hmm. what about them? What about the other 6 billion? And that's really the focus of a new, open, borderless, completely global and neutral system of currency, which in places of severe crisis like Venezuela is now rapidly coming to the rescue of a small part of the population, but it's having an impact already. For the record, I 100% agree with you. I mean, this makes complete sense for for the unbanked and everyone else. But I'm I'm curious, like, what is that? What is that tipping point that needs to happen, or that will eventually happen, where you have a country put their hand up and say, "We're Bitcoin. Like, we we're that is our national currency." Is is that realistic in the future? Do you think that will eventually happen? I think the idea that this becomes a decision on a per country basis or that countries adopt cryptocurrency by giving it a formal nod of approval is really a, not the right way of looking at it. I think the right way of looking at it is this becomes an individual choice for each and every individual. Already, a small percentage of people all across the world are opting out of the traditional banking system and exiting that system, and exiting that system not just by acquiring Bitcoin as an investment, but also by dedicating their productive labor, their services, and only accepting Bitcoin in return. I'm one of them. There are many others. And in some countries, that has become a larger percentage of the population, beginning to see it pick up very rapidly in Venezuela, simply because there are no alternatives. This will not happen smoothly. This will not happen homogeneously. Um, I think, I can't remember if it was Neil Stevenson or William Gibson who said the future is here today, but it's just unevenly distributed. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and the same thing applies with this. I, I think a really interesting parallel to this is the deployment of cell phone technology. It starts off in the 80s. I had one of the first cell phones, uh, big as a brick, uh, just past the point where it came with an accompanying suitcase that you had to carry right. or you I, had to I remember those to days. your car. Yeah, just past that, where it was just the size of a ridiculously sized brick and lasted 20 minutes on a single charge so you could make one phone call. That was not going to be the phone that your Kenyan farmer used. In fact, at the time, it was a status symbol of executives, the richest of the rich. Mm. 
And then gradually things changed, and over time, now if you see someone wearing a Bluetooth headset, your initial assumption is that they're a blue-collar worker, you know, a plumber, a construction worker, or something like that. And yet in every rural place, you go to the deepest parts of Amazonia, you're going to find a Nokia. You know, in the middle of the jungle, there's a Nokia charging on a solar panel going, right. <laughs> and it's that, that is the sound of civilization. And the really interesting thing is that it, it obviously opens enormous horizons for poor people and connects them to the world. But the, the really funny thing is the opposite end of that spectrum, where now the status symbol is to not carry your own phone, but to have an assistant carry it for you. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So yes, at the moment, you know, let's be realistic. Bitcoin is barely a blip. It's mostly the purview of privileged, literate, numerate, technically sophisticated geeks in Silicon Valley. Yes, absolutely. All of those things. It's expensive. It's difficult to learn. It's cumbersome technology. But if you look at that and draw conclusions, you're going to be mistaken because it's a protocol. It's growing on an exponential. Every aspect of every metric is growing on an exponential. The innovation is happening in a completely distributed way so that people who are not part of that cohort can build applications that serve their needs without asking for anybody's permission. So the system can now support applications that have a market size of two. You know, you and your developmentally disabled cousin can build us a Bitcoin application that serves people who have developmental disabilities or are hard of hearing or whatever. Um, you can pick any, any group that has a specific need, you can build an application. So the future of Bitcoin is very different than the beginning of Bitcoin. All that remains is this core idea of an open neutral protocol. I'm, I'm curious around people and how they're using this. Like you had mentioned, obviously I'm inside the bubble of being here in, in the United States. And, and for us here, especially in Silicon Valley, it is 100% or 99.99% a store of value for people, meaning they're speculating, they're holding, they're wanting the price to double, triple, whatever it may do over the next you know several years, but no one is spending it. I have, I have yet to see a single person say, send me some Bitcoin. You know, maybe in the early days when when it was, you know, I remember when I first started getting into it, it was you know around thirty dollars a coin, maybe forty, but not anymore. Is that is that the case everywhere, or are people actually using this as a day to day kind of currency? It's not that way everywhere. I spend Bitcoin almost every single day, and part of the reason is that it's it's part of my business. It's how I run my business. I get paid in Bitcoin by my clients. I support a number of people who uh, work for me and part of my team, both employees and contractors, the vast majority of whom get paid in Bitcoin. And so every week I'm paying a contractor, I'm paying an employee, um, I'm paying for services, I'm paying for equipment, I'm paying for software, I'm paying for hardware, and all of those payments are in Bitcoin. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the smart way a lot of people who instead held on to their Bitcoin and uh, obviously had disposable cash in the beginning have become millionaires, whereas I haven't. So I've built a, an interesting business out of it, but I, I probably should have held on to the early Bitcoin instead of spent it. But I think that's a defeating 
a self-defeating approach because if you don't engage in economic activity with this, you don't fully experience the power of this digital currency. As I said before, I'm not only using this uh, to build a real economy and economic activity behind it, which is the greatest determinant for success. I am also very explicitly withdrawing my labor from traditional currencies. Mm -hmm. Are you 100% Bitcoin? Like, do you have a, a, a traditional bank account or are you all all in? Unfortunately, I'm not 100% Bitcoin. I can't be 100% Bitcoin yet. It has not achieved uh, criticality so that it can become a closed, uh, self-sustaining loop. You'll know when it does. You will. <laughs> yeah, so what are the signs going to be for... When you say you'll know that it's like totally pervasive, is it just that there'll be a, a tipping point where everyone is, is kind of using it day to day? Uh, not everyone, but it will be used where it's needed most. Uh, its use will not be uh, something that is worth noting. In fact, it, it will be seen as irresponsible to not have Bitcoin in your portfolio, to not use Bitcoin, to not engage with clients who use Bitcoin uh, or other cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin, of course. But I think the, the idea is right now store value, right? Next a big hurdle is medium of exchange. I'm kind of doing that, but I can't quite get to it. Unit of account is the very, very big one. Once Bitcoin's volatility and velocity get to points of mainstream currency, what do I mean by that? In order for a currency to really be used as a day-to-day -day currency, its volatility has to be low enough that you can make predictions and pricing in that currency and use it as a unit of account. Bitcoin is very far from that, but it is on a very clear trajectory. If you take the volatility and you plot it on a graph, it's been going down for nine years very, very clearly, and it's already less volatile than more than 100 national currencies, not because Bitcoin isn't very volatile, but because they're even worse. <laughs> and... You know, and at that point, you, you, and you see this, you know, I, I come from um, a poor country and I've, I've stayed and visited a lot of developing countries. And what I can tell you is that in many countries where the currency is really weak, they don't use it as a unit of account. Uh, you'll find plenty of places around the world where people price in U.S. dollars hmm. uh, and, and pay in a different currency. But for pricing, they have to use something less volatile, right? They'll peg salaries to... A stronger currency and then pay them in a weaker currency. Right. And this is what you're seeing today in Bitcoin. I mean, people always refer to what is the price of a Bitcoin and they right. refer to the price in US dollars or euros or whatever it may be. Correct. And that's, and that's because um, you can't have pricing until you have very, very low volatility. What is low volatility? Like, I mean, obviously we're seeing this thing double or triple year over year on average. Like what, what's uh where do we have to be? Like we're talking to like a few percentage points up or down per year? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. For units of account, you have to get to that point. Uh, the other measure you can take, which people are a bit more comfortable with, is if you assume it's going to mostly behave like a deflationary currency, you're looking for negative volatility, which means you only count the times when it drops suddenly. And if it's increasing at a steady pace in value, uh, then you can treat it as a unit of account a bit sooner because people will disregard gains, but they will really, really object to losses. Do you see what I mean? I see. Absolutely. Yeah. So Bitcoin today, I mean, if we're just taking the US dollar, it's $92 billion market cap. 
Where does this go? I mean, I know it's, it's, let's just say things continue to expand and grow the way that they have been over the last, you know, five plus years. Are we talking into the, into the trillions? Like people always say, you know, you go read the subreddits, people are saying a hundred thousand dollars a coin, a hundred thousand USD a coin. I mean, that's kind of like the, the holy grail for this currency. Does it go there? So I, I'd like to make a distinction between Bitcoin that we have today and the broader concept, which is one or more uh, completely decentralized, open, borderless, neutral, censorship-resistant digital currencies that exist on the internet in whatever form of whatever recipe or however that they evolve, whether they keep the word Bitcoin or lose it or they have a different name or they emerge later – You've got to make that distinction because I can make predictions for one, but not the other. I can't tell you if Bitcoin is going to succeed and if it does succeed, what its price is going to go to, because that depends on how the brand evolves separately from the technology and whether the two work together. Uh, you may end up with completely different technology using the same name. You may end up with the same exact technology, but the brand has been so polluted that you change it, right? Mm -hmm. Just just for a chuckle, look up Equifax's old name. They changed it during some disastrous congressional hearings in the 90s. I think they were called Responsible Consumer or something or other. Um, <laughs> I think they're going to need another name change soon, right? They, 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 yeah, they're <laughs> going to need uh, another name change soon. Yes, God knows what that will be. Anyhow, the thing about the broader space, the, the, the thing I can make predictions about is that this idea of a network-based open and decentralized currency and all of the other applications that happen, uh, that has happened. The recipe was created. It's repeatable. It can be recreated as many times as needed until it succeeds. If it has flaws, those flaws can be fixed in, in various evolutionary iterations, some continuous, some discontinuous and disruptive. The bottom line is the world needs that. The world needs an open, public, neutral economy that's not um, you know, being kicked around because of geopolitics or used as a tool for surveillance and control. That is needed. And it's needed so much that I have no doubt in my mind that it will be wildly successful and it will completely transform the way we do commerce in the next 20 years Absolutely. And it's going to transform in ways we can't even expect. And that thing will underpin trillions of dollars of economic activity, whether it's Bitcoin and we still call it that, I don't know. I know that such a thing will exist. There's no going away from that. Right. You, you mentioned um, re replacing these transactions. Like, How do we fix... I mean, Visa is probably what, an order of magnitude larger in terms of Transactions per second versus five. Bitcoin, five. Okay, so five orders of magnitude larger. Wow. Okay. So yes, massive. So yes. How, how you know one of the issues I I see today, and I'm curious to get your take on on how we fix this is you know if I go walk up to a friend, I want to buy something from him, I send him you know a, a Bitcoin. Um, it's going to take me 10, 15 minutes to get the confirmations through like if you can't do that when you're trying to check out at a whole foods right like how do i how, how do we do that is that is that side chain like how do we fix that problem well i think it's important to clarify a couple of things first of all the 10 minute time for bitcoin confirmation is what we call clearing time 
that's the time it takes to clear the transaction and settle it. Um, settlement on the Visa network is 30 days. It's not instantaneous. Um, so your merchant doesn't actually get cleared funds in their account until sometimes uh, even more than 30 days. That's so let's right. compare the two. In terms of transaction authorization and propagation, which is the, I sign the transaction, it's circulated, the network knows it happened. Um, that happens instantaneously on Bitcoin. It takes about eight to 10 seconds to propagate globally for any transaction. And then it clears within 10, 20, or 30 minutes, depending on how much security you want. Is that a confirmation? That's the confirmation, but you don't need the confirmation to say that you've done a retail transaction, just like you don't need a signature to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks because the risk of fraud for that is so low and the hassle of moving, you know, the, the desire to move customers quickly through the checkout line. So you have similar similar issues there. Like if I buy a car with Bitcoin, yes, I'm waiting three confirmations. Uh, but if I buy a cup of coffee, do I really need to wait a confirmation? No, I don't. And well, wait, wait a second. So let's say I'm trying to buy a cup of coffee. Couldn't yeah. I just make a fake app and I show that to the, the, the person behind the counter there and say, oh, there it just went through. Like, Nope. Because what is going to happen is I make my payment for my coffee. The merchant's point of sale system should see that Bitcoin transaction propagating around the world, receive it, see that a payment has been made, can do some additional checks to make sure that the inputs haven't been double spent. And at the same time, the fee is high enough. There's no competing transactions trying to double spend the same inputs. Bottom line is the merchant verifies their receipt of that money themselves. Uh, they don't de depend on you showing them anything. And that happens within, as I said, eight to 10 seconds. But does that scale though? Like if we threw, you know, the visa transaction volume oh, absolutely. at it. Absolutely. In fact, that scales much better than the uh, long-term recording on the blockchain. What is that called though? That's not called a confirmation then, right? No, that's just the propagation. That's just authorization and transmission of the transaction. Why don't we see that? When, we, when I go and like, say I use a Coinbase or a Bitcoin wallet and I send something to a friend, why doesn't it say that it's starting to propagate and show me the status of that? Or does it and I just don't look for it? it? It does. And you've got to realize that when you're using Coinbase, you're not using Bitcoin. When you're using a custodial exchange, they are sending a, a transaction on your behalf and they may batch it, delay it, or do whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're using your own Bitcoin wallet and the other person is using their own Bitcoin wallet, decentralized, remember, uh, then the moment you send it to them, five to 10 seconds later, they should see that transaction. It doesn't matter where in the world they are, they're going to say incoming balance. Zero confirmations, but, but still they'll see a payment has been made. And merchant point of sale systems, which are more sophisticated, those wallets will check and, and do some additional checks to see how much they trust that transaction. So that's one aspect of the whole scalability issue. But I think the other one that I find much more exciting is to understand that Visa and Bitcoin are following two completely different development curves. Visa has grown its transactions per second in a linear fashion for the last 50 years. Bitcoin is growing in an exponential. And what happens when you grow, uh, compare an exponential to a linear? For a very long period of time, the exponential curve in a very shallow way is climbing below the linear curve. And then it hits the bend in the curve, the elbow as it's known in a, in a parabolic or exponential. And what happens then is it starts climbing up, it meets the linear, but when it meets the linear, 
it's already turning vertical, which means that, and this is my prediction, the day we achieve transaction parity with Visa, and we will, will be six months before we achieve 10x Visa. Oh, wow. And two years before we achieve 100x Visa, which means then we start talking about billions of transactions per second, microtransactions, nanotransactions, real-time streaming money, things that are unimaginable. And you see, the thing is, they stay on the linear curve because they're, the architecture itself is the predeterminant for that curve. So how do you do that in Bitcoin? Largely, you do it as we have with other protocols by going up the protocol stack. So all of the innovation is not happening in IP anymore. It's happening in Speedy and uh, TCP and HTTP and WebRTC and things like that. And for the same reasons that IP and TCP on its own couldn't scale for voice and video and the thing we're doing right now, which I was told in the 90s when I was at university, could not be done. And that the internet would never scale because packet switch networks were not capable of delivering the scalability of the telecommunications circuit switch networks. Well, <laughs> we ate their lunch and we're right. about to see that exact same history repeat. Lightning network, payment channels, side chains, uh, additional layers are capable of doing first tens of thousands of transactions per second, very close to parity with Visa, and then millions, and then billions of transactions per second. Now, none of these get recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain directly. Mm -hmm. What happens instead is that you have a trust platform underpinning the network, and it allows you to resolve disputes. Think about it a bit this way. If you do a contract with someone, you don't expect it to take it to court. 99% of contracts will be handled by two private people amongst themselves. You only need to take it to court if a dispute that is not resolvable arises. So with um, second layer technologies, we use smart contracts, which are a combination of multi-signature technology and time delays to create essentially uh, an IOU with a with a refund capability that allows us to process payments between two private individuals that go perfectly well as every as long as everybody's playing by the rules and if somebody tries to cheat you take that partial transaction you commit it to the bitcoin network the bitcoin network acts as a neutral judge if you like mathematical judge resolves it in favor of the person who didn't cheat and punishes the person who cheated by making them lose their money and once you get that technology in your mind you're like oh okay well now we can do billions of transactions per second hmm interesting because it's completely you're you're not really having to write it out to the actual blockchain itself almost right. 99% of the time right and uh i like the idea that the prevailing wisdom today is that blockchains can't scale, uh, and not just can't scale within the context of a single blockchain, but just generally, which is a, a very bad overgeneralization. It is akin to horse buggy manufacturers sitting on the side of the road, pointing at the automobile that is bogged down in a muddy, rutted horse road and going three miles an hour and breaking down all the time, pointing at it and laughing and going, this will never work. I love that. Keep thinking that way, please. <laughs> the banking industry needs to remain complacent for 10 more years. Um, just like the telco industry when it was faced with the internet. Smug and complacent, here we come.
That's right. One question about the transaction volume on Bitcoin. You know, obviously, when you talk about Visa transaction volume, you're talking about actual purchases and exchanges that are happening. How much of the transaction volume that we see on the, the Bitcoin blockchain is, you know, hedge funds and day traders? And, and do we know or is that just impossible to tell? It's, it's impossible to tell. But I think the really interesting things happen when you are able to open up new levels of scale, which create the possibility for new types of applications. One of the talks I did, for example, which is called Streaming Money, is about the idea that a lot of the payment networks we have today are batched. And they're batched because um, that's the fastest we can do. And it's also the smallest unit of payment we can do. But what happens when you can make payments that are equivalent of a thousandth of a penny, and you can do 10 payments of those a millisecond? How does that change the way you think about money? And what it does is really it changes it from a batch medium to a streaming medium, just like we've seen streaming music, streaming video, and things like that. They fundamentally alter the medium. They, they don't just change the way you transmit it. They change the way it's produced, consumed, and used, and create new formats entirely, right? Because you just change the time scale. And so that's what's going to happen to money. We're looking at a completely different time scale. And what happens when you do micropayments at millisecond scale is you start thinking about automation, you start thinking about software agents, you start thinking about ad hoc relationships. Let me give you an example. If there's no cost to doing that, um, how about I get into a car that's a rental car, and as long as I'm driving faster than five miles an hour, I'm paying a stream of money to an insurance company that is insuring me by the second. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I step out of the car, I'm no longer being insured. I get back into the car, I'm now being insured on a per second basis. Why not? Yeah, I love that. I, I lo- also love that. That's been the promise of of kind of paywalls on the internet for a long time, to think that I can then send like real-time money to articles that I'm enjoying or reading, you know, so we don't have to be so dependent on advertisements. Exactly. Um, could, could be fascinating. It's absolutely. And I, I talk about that in a, a talk I call uh, Redecentralize the Web, which is the idea that payment systems themselves have become the nexus for centralization around web services. Uh, and a lot of the web companies that we, uh, you know, in, in some cases love, some cases hate, that, that are, it, express decentralization, Airbnb, Uber, et cetera, et cetera, they're actually quite centralized. And the reason they're centralized is because they're centralized around payment fulfillment. And without the payment fulfillment, you can imagine completely decentralized versions of those that operate mm-hmm. as peer-to-peer protocols. So payments actually is one of those forces that f- that has created a lot of centralization on the web. And if you change that, you uh, you reverse that trend. And I, I think that's really interesting. Most people are not yet thinking, they're thinking parity with Visa, right? And it's a common theme. It's a bit like, I remember the questions in the 1990s where they said, okay, this internet is great, but what about when we can send, do you think we'll ever be able to send all of the faxes over the internet? Will we achieve fax parity? Like you are kind of missing the point here. 
uh, what if I told you, Neo, that one day you will never need to send a fax again? And so, <laughs> right. <laughs> so the same thing applies to these technologies. We're thinking about parity replacement with traditional currency and payment systems as if we will simply replicate the same model only That's slightly right. That's faster. That's an old way of thinking, right. though. Yeah. It's, it's skeuomorphic thinking, which is very common right. because people can't do exponentials. But when you do exponentials, there are certain milestones and these milestones are scale and architecture milestones and when you go over those scale and architecture milestones it opens up the possibility of previously unthought of impossible applications right. that's really exciting right. just like the new ideas that will come out of that unlocking exactly i mean it's we've seen this happen all along the way with the internet right i mean like when we were first doing bbs's and dial up 2400 bob modems no one was thinking about streaming netflix movies right well <laughs> so. we were but we thought it would be impossible and we were clearly right. told by the phone companies i remember these conversations that don't you worry we have isdn you're gonna get your tv right but uh that will never happen on the internet it cannot happen. And here is a PhD paper on why physics says it's impossible. Oh, man, I was so excited when I got my ISDN line. I don't know if you remember your first ISDN line. Oh, yes, I do. And that was amazing. It, it was amazing. And then it was quickly obsolete and it could That's never right. compete because it was not innovation at the edge. It was innovation in the center. And that could never right. compete. And so the same thing now, actually, the ironic thing is that we see um, financial services institutions are trying to embrace and co-opt the blockchain, strip it of all of the interesting characteristics, all of the decentralized, neutral, censorship-resistant, open, borderless, for everyone in the world characteristics, and turn it into a closed control intranet style. Yeah, see, that's, that's boring term. to me. Whenever I hear about these like big corporations embracing the blockchain, I'm like, okay, great. You got a better database. Like that's like what else? That's, that's not the point. Right. But actually, it's uh, part of the reason this is happening is because it's being sold as uh, a solution to defanging and um, reducing the disruptive Im impact of the truly open public blockchain, which I find hilarious because, you know, the, the whole idea that consultants are going out there and saying, don't worry, don't be too scared. You can also do blockchain and, you know, and then the governments will come in and they'll make people use our blockchain and, um, you know, the others will be banned. Right. And, and you know, you've reached the end of the road in entrepreneurial capitalism when your best chance of staving off competition is the government will fix it for you. Right. That's very true. When you hear bankers saying that, it's deliciously ironic. So I want to get into a few really practical things for the people listening. First of all, I mean, you got me excited about Bitcoin all over again. I, I, where do you buy your Bitcoin? And where do you recommend people go and buy Bitcoin? I haven't bought Bitcoin since nineteen since uh, twenty thirteen. Wow! So you've been sitting on it for a while. No, I've been earning it. And this is another, you know, we'll go back to the previous conversation. You know, this is another big misunderstanding. If you think of buying Bitcoin, you're primarily thinking of it as a commodity asset investment. Right. But obviously, a lot of people are going to think that way today, right? Absolutely. Like they're going to want to just go out and get, say, I have one Bitcoin. The problem with that is that you're only getting part of the Bitcoin experience. It's a bit like, I want to get onto the internet. I'm going to sign up for AOL. Yeah. Right. Versus I'm going to dial up to, 
you know, um, a service provider and get unfettered TCP IP, different experience as a whole. And so, you know, Facebook isn't the internet and, uh, uh, Coinbase isn't Bitcoin. <laughs> that's the that's the bottom line. So if you right. think about, I get that, but a lot of people a lot of people started with AOL and then eventually got their own standalone browser, right? Oh yeah, we're gonna get them there. That's not the problem. The problem is that there is a lot of additional risk involved with approaching Bitcoin uh, from the perspective of buying it. You have to then worry about timing the market and how you're gonna hold and not to panic. And then also, you know, if you buy it from one of these third parties, you're doing it with a lot of privacy invading, know your customer regulations and identifying documents, mm-hmm. et cetera. That. And like, you know, Equifax lost all our documents and they're a multi-billion company. Are, do you really think that your local Bitcoin startup that just got funded has the security, the operational security to hold a lot of people's privately identifiable information? I don't think so. Um, So that always concerns me. And then, of course, if you leave the money on the exchange, uh, then you're experiencing custodial Bitcoin. I can guarantee you they do not have FDIC or they do for the dollars, but not for the Bitcoin. That is a very dangerous position to put yourself in. So, okay. So practical advice. Mm -hmm. First choice, earn it. And you may not get many asks at first if you're a hairdresser and you say, I'll cut hair for Bitcoin and nobody's interested, or you don't know anyone who has Bitcoin to say yes, but eventually, eventually you'll run into someone who does. Okay. Well, hold on one sec. You said earn it. I've, I've got to have a client to receive that Bitcoin. What, what clients are you recommending people these days that they put on their either phone or desktop or whatever it may be? I would go with the rule of thumb that says that uh, for most people, the most secure device they own is their smartphone, uh, far more than their desktop. I would recommend getting uh, an open source, easy to use uh, wallet that... Any favorites? I mean, I have a bunch of favorites uh, for different platforms, uh, Jax, Copay, Mycelium, Bread Wallet, Airbits, all of those are pretty good. Uh, as for more power users, let's call it, um, Mycelium and Samurai are great wallets. For ease of use, Airbits and Jacks or Bread Wallet are, are good wallets. You know, And mm-hmm. for all of these wallets, you don't trust the software. You make a backup of your keys, which you do by writing down some English words. And um, you keep that somewhere safe so that if you lose your phone or your wallet gets corrupted or whatever, you can get your funds back. And then you just start advertising, hey, I take Bitcoin for podcasts or whatever else your, your income earning potential is and see what happens. Now, you can also go to an exchange and jump through all of the hoops and get verified and then buy some Bitcoin. You can also buy Bitcoin from ATMs or in-person transactions. Where do you find those ATMs? Is there a a site that you can go to? Because I've seen those around, but I just never know where to go. Yeah, if you Google Bitcoin ATM map, uh, you'll find a map that shows you all of the Bitcoin ATMs uh, all around the country, uh, what kind of fees Mm -hmm. they charge all around the world, and you can find one. Now, do you put credit cards in for that, or is it you put fiat, like standard USD in, and get cash. coin back? And cash. here's an okay. interesting thing that is going to shock a lot of people when they first try to buy Bitcoin. You cannot buy Bitcoin almost anywhere with a credit card or PayPal. There's a very good reason for that. And the reason for that is that PayPal deposits or credit cards are reversible, very easily reversible, in fact. And banks cannot deliver a hard promise that says, oh, as of now, this money is definitely, definitely yours. 
at any moment in time, they can come back and go, ah, turns out we had a fraud report on this. So we froze this amount or we withdrew it from your account. Come talk to us to prove it wasn't your fault. So what happens is when, when these payments can only deliver a soft promise, but the Bitcoin transaction is a hard promise. And once you've delivered that Bitcoin, there's no going back. No one's going to give you Bitcoin for a credit card, right? Because you can reverse right. the credit card, but you're, you still get to keep the Bitcoin. There's nothing we can do. So you'll see most of the time it's cash-based transactions or from a bank account, and it requires a lot of verification. If you want to get Bitcoin without uh, jumping through a lot of hoops, cash is the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. Local Bitcoins, too, is a good site that you can go to and find people to meet up with, right? Right. Localbitcoins.com is a matching service that allows you to find people. Uh, beware, in some places in the United States, uh, it is uh, illegal to sell Bitcoin in that way above certain amounts. I, I can't be sure, but I would say almost anywhere in the United States, I believe it is always legal to buy Bitcoin that way, whether you sell it as a, as a whole other, other scenario. Um, and in many countries, that is still illegal. But then again, so are many things. So people just work around that. It seems like you, you are kind of a little bit hesitant of obviously any trusted third parties, and that includes exchanges. So do we need a decentralized exchange? There are a number of decentralized exchanges, and we do need a decentralized exchange. None of them are that big though, right? No, they're are not. Are they still in the early days? And there's, again, part of the reason for that is while you can do quite easily, you can do decentralized exchanges between digital currencies, doing decentralized exchanges to fiat is almost impossible because you have to somehow hook into the existing banking system. That's a single point of failure. So it's not a decentralized exchange anymore. And the promises they can make in financial payments are soft. So it undermines the whole system of a decentralized exchange. Unless you go out to something like a Tether coin, right? Uh, well, that suffers from the third-party risk, the counterparty risk of Tether itself right. and the reserves that that's supposed to have. I generally you know, avoid that. So, so real quick, for people that don't know, Tether is this idea of this currency that has pegged themselves to the US dollar. So one coin equals one US dollar. And then they try to back it by... 100% uh, US dollars in the, in the bank. Reserves. So they actually ha are they're holding those reserves. That's right. That's correct. Yes. And and again, you know, that's a trusted third party. So anytime that you have, and people find this strange at first, you know, why does Bitcoin have a native, strange, weird currency that runs on the network itself? Why not just do all of that, but with dollars or some other digital currency? And the reason is that is because when you have a non-native currency, then the reserves that are being hold create counterparty risks. Someone has to hold those reserves. With Bitcoin, because there are no reserves, because Bitcoin exists on the network, there's no counterparty risk in that system. And so you can only ever use a Bitcoin that actually exists. You can't borrow a Bitcoin that doesn't exist or lend a Bitcoin that doesn't exist. You can't create one out of thin air. It's a 100% reserve system as long as you hold your own Bitcoin. Other currencies out there, I mean, obviously, Ethereum, massive, really big pioneer in terms of smart contracts and making that a reality. What are your thoughts on Ethereum and some of these other altcoins out there? Uh, so I, I try to avoid calling them altcoins because that's being used as a term of disparagement in the industry. Okay. What should we call them then? What are you, just other just cryptocurrencies? Currencies, yeah. Um, so, you know, the and I, I don't want to use that term directly, but... I'm writing my next book, uh, Mastering Ethereum, 
which is about it's the Ethereum platform. I've been interested since the very beginning, since uh, Vitalik wrote the white paper. And uh, sorry, Vitalik Buterin is the uh, founder of Ethereum. And he wrote a white paper back in 2013, 14. I happened to read that before it was published for review. And I, I was fascinated from the very beginning. I, I think there are a lot of promising things happening across the entire ecosystem. And I think Part of the adaptation that we're having to go through is this idea that we've grown up having monopoly currencies that are national flag currencies that exist in a zero-sum geopolitical chess game where one only wins if it beats the other and all of that attitude. Very much like in the past, we used to have you know five national newspapers. They existed in direct competition. The space was limited. The market share was fixed. And then bloggers happened. And then you have to ask, well, how many bloggers can possibly exist? And the answer is uh, all of us. And, uh, <laughs> and it doesn't diminish or change the value of um, mainstream news if they had value in the first place, if they retained value in the first place. And it doesn't mean that all of them are good. Most of them are not. Uh, but some of them are great. And so the same thing has now happened with currencies. We have to get used to a wor world in which there are now thousands of currencies. There will be tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands, then millions, and then billions of digital currencies that can be created and destroyed in moments that can be created by anyone for reasons as silly as a loyalty currency that's created by Joey, the five-year-old, in order to socially engage with uh, their primary school friends, you know, versus a global reserve currency that China is using to buy oil. Both of those are digital currencies. Both exist on the same spectrum of continuum, have nothing to do with each other. Once you get comfortable with that idea, you start realizing that all of these currencies effectively are now playing an evolutionary game where as programmable currencies, they fit into um, specific niches and they compete for those niches. And some are successful and some are not. And they uh, emerge to occupy new niches and they may be designed to do one thing and then uh, somehow uh, the market twists them into doing something else, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like we need to bridge these currencies, though, in some way, right? That's that's. I, I, I go back to your original analogy about getting in a car and having instant on insurance as you step into the car. You'd imagine that that could be one currency. Another currency could be the energy that you're using um, while you're driving that vehicle, right? So, right. and they would somehow need to communicate with each other. Like, I'm sure that's that's in this mix, correct? It's absolutely in this mix. And so as we're progressing along this path, what we're seeing is the emergence of decentralized exchanges, cross blockchain uh, transactions that are decentralized, trustless, atomic, atomic in the um, computer science meaning that they either happen altogether or not at all. So that you can have people essentially fluidly transmutating currencies from one to another. Eventually, I can imagine a time when all of that detail is hidden behind a user interface that uses some heuristic or machine learning to decide for this particular purpose that my user has asked me to achieve now, um, the best currency is this one. I'm going to change part of this currency into that so that I can do this transaction and then change it back. 
um, so that all of this becomes completely invisible. Essentially, your wallet is routing. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So it's much like the internet today. Like we're not choosing which protocols we're using Correct. to transfer files or to watch videos or whatever it may be, but that's all happening all behind the scenes. We just say, this is what I want. And the back end figures it out, it out kind of dynamically. And there's a very strong parallel between uh, browsers and Bitcoin wallets. Bitcoin wallets are essentially... Uh, the browsers of the Bitcoin network, they are the protocol endpoints and user interface, uh, the node, and they interpret the network protocol, present it to the user in an easy to understand way, and convert the user's desires into protocol activities. And multi-currency wallets that exist are just the first step. But eventually you get this blended, hopefully seamless and intuitive experience where you don't have to use a different application uh, for a different purpose. Like I remember the time when I had a browser, but if I wanted to watch video, my browser had to launch an external application. Uh, I remember the time when I had a browser and it wanted to uh, play sound. I had to launch an external application, pretty much only oh, yeah. images. Real player, remember real, real player? <laughs> that was the worst. Uh, the Well, uh, I, I preferred, um, what's it called? It really beats the llama's ass. Oh, Winamp. Winamp, yeah. Yeah, Winamp was great. Now, that, that's, a, that's a slogan that a whole generation just went, what? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyhow, yeah. So when we started with the web, it wasn't a unified experience. And, and in some ways, you know, the, the frontier of unification keeps moving forward. Right now, I open my web browser. And if I want to consume VR content, I have to open a new thing. And, and the same thing, gradually it evolves until all of these protocols become subsumed into a single experience. We're still in the early stages of that, but wallets are mechanisms for trading, for converting currencies, for displaying currencies, for pricing, for exchange rate information, for interpreting merchant uh, payments and requests, for issuing invoices, for doing accounting and tax accounting, for auditing, for creating transparency. All of these functions are gradually getting bundled in the Bitcoin wallet itself is becoming a very powerful, uh, slightly complicated and really important application ecosystem. You're so involved in this whole community and you've written books on multiple books, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. But you have to track a lot of this. I'm sure you, you track a lot of different currencies to see what they're going on, what's going on. If you had to stack rank them in terms of not what you're holding personally, but just your interest level, and you th you're thinking they're working on something really interesting that could have a very large impact on the overall ecosystem long term. I mean, obviously, we have Bitcoin and Ethereum. What, what are your top five? Like, what are some of the other currencies or you know, even things like um, decentralized apps or things that you're looking at and, and tracking that um, you want to pay attention to and keep close tabs on? Yeah, I, I will avoid doing a top five of currencies because inevitably anything I say positive is treated as an endorsement and absolute sure. validation of the security model and personal guarantee. Anything I don't mention is uh, because of my well-known <laughs> bias and shillery, which I'm I'm That's I'm right. being paid to not mention. But anyway, I'll, uh, joking aside, I'll talk about features. I think some of the compelling features on which these technologies are differentiating, and some of the application areas that are very interesting to me. Uh, obviously, smart contracts are a very interesting application. And just more, more broadly, the idea of a general purpose programmable blockchain. Sure. That has some limitations, and it doesn't do the same thing as the pure reserve currency blockchain. 
but it's it is a very interesting area to explore and i think will will be monumental in in its impact the second area for me is privacy so uh privacy anonymity fungibility all of those things are becoming strong plays for differentiation among cryptocurrencies. You don't have to mention names, but I'll, I'll say a couple here just for our listeners. So like privacy, you're talking in terms of currencies like Zcash, Monero, things like Correct, that. Correct, yes. And 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 uh, Bitcoin itself and some of the innovations that are happening in Bitcoin. But you know, as part of the features that are coming, uh, what we're going to see is stronger implementations of fungibility and privacy across all cryptocurrencies. I think those will become table stakes. So things like zero-knowledge proofs, uh, snarks, ring signatures. Which Ethereum is adding here very soon, correct, in, in a future release? Uh, yes. Uh, it's scheduled for the Metropolis fork, which is happening, the Metropolis release, um, which is happening later this year. And yeah, so some of the prerequisites actually went in two days ago. Oh, wow. Uh, some of the function primitives that are used in order to validate zero-knowledge snarks were added two days ago in the in the Byzantium hard fork. And so for people that, that are not familiar with this, I mean, this is essentially this idea that you can have a cryptocurrency, you can send it to someone else, and there is no knowledge of who the two parties are, no traceability of that transaction. Is that correct? Not just who the two parties are, but also what amount got transmitted. Now, one of the things we learned from Snowden, which I think was really critical, is the importance of metadata and the rich information that can be extracted from metadata alone. And I think InfoSec has matured a lot in terms of taking better care of protecting metadata. So in a transaction, what is the metadata? You know, one of the important ones is the value that's being transmitted. And if you are able to encrypt that, so that everyone can still validate that the correct amount was transmitted, that it didn't add up to more than was put in, but still have no idea what that amount was. And that sounds like magic, uh, and snarks are exactly that. If you can do that, then you significantly limit the, the analysis that can be done. Without that, if you know the values, the amount of information you can extract just from correlation analysis is so significant that it breaks anonymity. Like... Bitcoin at the moment is not anonymous. And the reason it's not anonymous is because you can trace amounts. So even if you don't know who the addresses are, um, you can do a lot of clustering correlation analysis with that. And there's a lot of companies having a field day. I hope, and many others do, that we'll put them out of business by making things better. Fungibility, therefore, the anonymity, this idea that you don't know who the sender is, don't know who the recipient is, don't know what the amount is. Now, some people are scared by that. I think it returns us to an era when, you know, that's how finance worked for thousands of years. We couldn't tell who was doing everything at all times. That's a recent invention, and I'm very glad to see that it's probably not going to happen. And anonymity, I think, is a fundamental part of privacy, which is a fundamental part of human rights, which is a fundamental part of political expression. You can't do any of those things if you have zero financial privacy. Right. So anyhow, so that's the second area. I think the third area is resource utilization, which I find very interesting. The idea that your hard drive, your laptop, your CPUs, your bandwidth are all massively underutilized resources that could be resold if only you had a mechanism for monetization, price discovery, and market making. And now we do. Mm -hmm. So how do you create, for example, decentralized storage? Cloud storage, 
which is peer-to-peer entirely with no central point of failure. And that creates uncensorable storage, which is also very interesting for the propagation of ideas on the internet. It's scary, but it's also interesting. Absolutely necessary. And you know the, the, the possibility of being able to store data that cannot be shut down and censored. I mean, we already have that on the internet. It just strengthens that. Yeah. It, that, that scares me in a lot of ways. I don't know about you, but I mean, there's certain information out there. Like, for example, when YouTube um, took down last week, um, there was some videos on how to modify weapons to make them fully automatic. Yes. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, thank God they, they removed that. But this idea of there being a fully distributed you know, something you can't take down video or just let's just say it's white supremacy content, like that kind of stuff. Just, uh, I know, I know it's, you, you can't have a system that doesn't allow all content. Like you can't have a partial system. So if you're going to go there, you have to go all the way. Right. Well, yes. And at the same time, I think it's ironic that what we're actually discussing is how do we control the dissemination of videos about how to make a fully automatic weapon and not the weapon itself. So, right, which strikes me as right. a bit ironic. Uh, and I would say the very same defense that exists for the Second Amendment exists even more strongly for the First Amendment and is even more worthy of protecting. But that's a personal political opinion. I like to think about this pragmatically, which is, listen, we now live in a world where the technology exists to make that happen. Now what do we do? We can't pretend this technology doesn't exist. We can't pretend that uh, we can make it stop or go away. So let's talk about how we can draw the most good out of it. Uh, And I think the amount of good that can be drawn out of uh, technologies that allow people to share bandwidth storage and computing, which decentralizes computing massively and can lead to decentralizing the web and communication channels massively, actually add a lot of good to the world. Oh, absolutely. Like if you think about these resources coming online, again, like the micropayments before we talked about, you just really don't know what's going to be built once this is available. Like this idea of computing on demand um, at scale, you know, for whether it be cancer research, protein folding, you know, like that's, that's a really compelling and interesting idea of, of, of it. And I'm curious to see it uh, in, in practice. Like, so, so actual currencies that we're talking about then would be something like a file coin that hasn't shipped yet. And there's a few others that are trying to, to, to roll this out. Is that, is that right? Oh, there's, there's about half a dozen, three or four, just in the storage area, uh, additional ones, mm-hmm. uh, more generally for bandwidth and CPU and other cloud computing resources. Yes. It's a very active area of resource because it's recognized that if you have these resources on your computer and you want to utilize them, then you need a marketplace to do that. You need a mechanism for monetization and price discovery. And I I think that's going to enable a whole new class of applications out of that. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea to think that I could go to sleep, offer up half of my hard drive space to people that need it at night you know, I have a fast internet connection here at my house and, and get paid for that. And get paid in a currency that you don't necessarily see as a currency. And this is another thing you have to think about is that you may see this token simply as a token that represents your ability to acquire storage from the network whenever you want. Um, so mm-hmm. that when you have a project that requires a lot of storage, you've earned that storage by giving out yours. So you can now recoup some of that and get some storage from other people. So it becomes 
You're mm-hmm. not thinking about, I'm going to make money. You're thinking about, I'm giving storage so I can receive storage in, in return, but this is a more powerful model than barter because you can also uh, monetize, liquidate, or exchange for another resource that you don't have. So I have storage, I've given storage, I've earned this coin, I then use it to buy a CPU coin, which I use to do my machine learning uh, or whatever. Right. So all resources- Or I want to buy some some storage for my videos because I have Nest cameras outside that are recording the perimeter of the house and I need to store that data up to the cloud, but I don't want to do it in a centralized fashion. So I could use it, use this coin to, to purchase and store that data. Bingo. And you know, that aspect becomes very, very uh, interesting. I think it's people underestimate how powerful of a concept it is to add to the internet a protocol that allows you to build markets, markets that do price discovery and resource allocation, market mechanisms. Uh, And we're really going to see an explosion in that as people find ways to introduce market mechanisms that are more efficient, more transparent, uh, more equitable across the internet. And in many cases, these marketplaces will converge to uh, free uh, because that's the marginal cost of providing the underlying resource. Uh, The marketplace isn't necessarily something for making money. It's for allocating resources. All right. So we have smart contracts, privacy, um, markets for resources. Anything else that you're tracking? Um, Well, I think the um, other big one is charitable use of these systems you know the part of the difficulty we have in the area of charity is that a lot of the need is in places far away across borders a lot of the resources is you know on the other side of these borders and getting the money across the borders and distributed to people without 99% of it disappearing in the cracks is a big problem with charities so combining oh wow i hadn't even th- thought about that because this is a really efficient way to get money to people in need. Yes. Transparency, accountability, recording. There's a favorite charity of mine called BitGive that's doing, uh, it's a Bitcoin foundation. It's a Bitcoin charity that uh, is a charitable foundation. And it uses this technology to to re-envision how charity can be done. And they have a project called GiveTrack. And what this allows you to do is watch on the blockchain and track the money you sent in all the way down to the money that got spent to buy the bricks to build the well for the water project in Kenya. And so you can you can actually see all of the flows of money. It's, it's not uh, an accounting report that's sent to you. Every single contributor to the charity can in real time and without asking anyone audit the charity online and just looking at the blockchain track all of the information. That's awesome. Right. So you don't get the kind of um, situations where you have these charities where 98% of the funds go to internal operations, which usually means gold bathtubs and fast private jets <laughs> or whatever the hell it means these days. And so, right. so that's an interesting application. And then if you can combine some more crazy ideas, you start thinking about the application of smart contracts and these things, you can think of a decentralized and autonomous charity, which is a smart contract that uses some heuristic, maybe Google searches, to detect natural disasters like hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis in different parts of the world, and then automatically diverts uh, aid funds from the contributions to the people in need with zero operating cost, um, 100% of the funds going directly to charitable people, no directors, no managers, no executives, only donors, 
who may have a voting role or may not have a voting role at all, and it's completely automated. Wow, that's a really powerful concept. And because to think about the speed in which you could get funds to those people versus having to, you know, really drum up support and get people to go on, you know, today we say, oh, donate to the Red Cross. And that lag time there is a few days, you know, because you have to get enough kind of public attention and awareness out there. And then you have to promote it. And then you have to get the funds. And then you have to distribute the funds and resources. Like, it's just like, those are really essential, crucial days. And that could be happening in almost real-time fashion. Yes. Once you get into this technology, you suddenly realize that we are running an information age economy on a 1970s industrial age banking infrastructure that is groaning and creaking at the seams that is slow, insecure, and expensive. And yet here we have the ability to do commerce at the speed of the internet. And the only reason we don't do it is because of traditional banking getting in the world. Yeah. So uh, Andreas, I want to ask you one last question. It's one that really scares the shit out of me. And that is quantum computing. Um, it seems like every other week I'm hearing some press about quantum computing and they're making giant leaps forward. Doesn't quantum computing and this idea of being able to uh, potentially crack the encryption that underpins all of these cryptocurrencies, is, is that going to be a reality in the next 10, 20 years? Absolutely. It is going to be a reality, and uh, it's not just going to be a reality for cryptocurrencies. Cryptographic algorithms are the ones that secure our banks. So all of the concerns you have, apply them equally to banking. Crypto, uh, so cryptographic algorithms are the ones that secure nuclear weapons, are the ones that secure access and communications in militaries, are the ones that secure everything in our world. So Cryptocurrencies may even be the least of our worries when it comes to unequal availability of quantum computing. Now, you've got to think of it in terms of unequal availability. If quantum computing is broadly available, then it's not a problem because then you can use a quantum computer to use quantum cryptography that is quantum resistant. Um, It's if it's unevenly distributed where only a few players willing to use it against you have it. Now, the good news is if somebody did have quantum cryptography that nobody else had today, Bitcoin is the last thing they'd use it on because they have much more important things to hold it for. You know, keep that powder dry. I, I, I think of it similar to the way, you know, when the British had cracked Enigma, um, yeah, they could read all of the German communications, but the secret that they had achieved that was much more important than any one success in battle. So, you know, they let the Germans bomb Coventry, even though in, they knew it was coming because they weren't able to create parallel construction story. I think the same thing applies to quantum computing. If you have it, it's an enormously powerful weapon that is only powerful as long as nobody knows you have it. So you don't use it unless under dire circumstances. And I think disrupting a couple of Bitcoiners is hardly going to be the case. Now, the other and important consideration is this. All cryptography has a, has a shelf life, right? All cryptography eventually is no longer suitable for maintaining security as computing progresses, quantum computing progresses, but also pure mathematics progresses and we get better techniques for factorization and other mathematical techniques. So you assume that cryptography has a shelf life and therefore you make it so that the cryptographic algorithms can be upgraded in situ. And that's exactly what happens in all of these cryptocurrencies. The 
cryptographic algorithms can be upgraded, and they can be upgraded to be more quantum resistant than the ones we have now. Is anyone working on that right now? Like, is there is there a way to... Or we just don't know what it is. You don't optimize that problem because there's absolutely no need to work on it now. And we will know when it's a problem because we're going to start seeing certain accounts getting drained. So there's, there is a canary. There's a giant $92 billion canary called Bitcoin that will tell us about the arrival of quantum computing. <laughs> will we have a solution then? Or will it just be like... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I Well, first of all, there are a couple of solutions already baked in. So in Bitcoin, for example, public keys are not presented to the network until after they've been redeemed. And under normal circumstance, what you publish is a double hash of a public key, which means that even if you can reverse ECDSA or um, elliptic curve um, multiplication, uh, you now have to also reverse two rounds of SHA-256. And those are two very completely different algorithms that have two different approaches to how you break them. In fact, as far as I know, there's no quantum efficient way to reverse SHA, digital fingerprints, hashing algorithms. So, um, you know, you break one but not the other, you're shit out of luck. We're going to see how this plays out, but I expect very soon we're going to see um, upgrades being put in place. The upgrades will happen you know, a decade before it's actually necessary, but not sooner, because that's just a waste of development resources. And cryptography is getting better all the time. So I'm not worried about that at all. Quantum computing is is not a relevant issue in these currencies. Great. Well, Andreas, thank you for your time. Uh, before we go, I want to talk about the books that you've um, created. You have Mastering Bitcoin, and that's from O'Reilly, right? That's correct. That's the hardcore manual, right? Yes. Yeah, so Mastering Bitcoin, in the vein of any O'Reilly book that starts with the word mastering, is a from zero to a very, very deep technical level, an explanation of exactly everything that operates in Bitcoin, how it works, why it works that way. And it, it, you can dive into any part of Bitcoin. And it's for software software engineers. It's for developers. It's got code in it. Mm -hmm. And it's also a college-level textbook that's being taught in about a dozen universities at the moment. Oh, wow. That's great. Importantly, the second edition was issued about a month ago. It's available under an open-source license. The second edition is free to read, share uh, for free. And the first edition is under a completely open Creative Commons attribution share alike, which means it's been translated by volunteers into 14 languages. Uh, it can be used to mash up and produce anything. Um, so all of my work is open source. The second book I published is called The Internet of Money. And it is a collection of my talks, uh, my seminars that I do on Bitcoin, talks about philosophy, economics, history, culture, and the impact of this technology. It's about why Bitcoin matters, and it's for an open general audience. And the second volume of that is coming out in December. And you have that on Audible as well, correct? Uh, yes. Uh, so the Internet of Money is available on ebook, print, and audiobook. And also the nice thing is on ebook, it's available in the Kindle lending library. It's available as a matchbook, which means that if you buy the print, you get the ebook for free. Um, it's available under Prime and Unlimited. So a lot of people who can't afford it otherwise can get it for free. That's great. And you would recommend the Internet of Money for someone that's a little less technical, but but wants to know all the history and, and background here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll tell you something funny. Someone recently told me that they uh, that it is their toilet book, that they leave it in the toilet and they read a chapter every time they go. <laughs> and I'm like, 
And they said, I, ho- I think that's a compliment. I hope you're not offended. I'm like, no, that was my dream. I actually told my publisher that my absolute dream would be uh, exactly that kind of use. It's written for that purpose, like to be easy to jump in and jump out, give it five minutes of your attention and you'll get something useful out of it. So yes, I mean, it is really a book for everyone. And um, yeah, the next one is Mastering Ethereum. And it's going to be, again, a college-level textbook scientific document for software engineers about the uh, Ethereum uh, platform, smart contracts, and programming. When will people be able to pre-order that one? Oh, they can pre-order it already, uh, putting immense pressure on me to uh, write it up because I'm running <laughs> late now. So I'm very embarrassed by that. But uh, And you, all of the books can be pre-ordered already. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show, Andreas. Oh, it's a huge pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this was fun and uh, I look forward to coming back and chatting some more in the future. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the show. It was a fun first show. If you have ideas for guests, you can always tweet them at me. I'm at Kevin Rose on Twitter. And I will say the number one thing you can do to help us out if you did enjoy the show is that head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. That would be massive because it gets the show recommended to more people, more people listen, and I have better guests on the show. Thanks so much. Be well.